Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the Spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. Father, thank you again for the chance for us to be together. Um, as we open your word now, we come to a, a passage that gives us some insight into um, the early church and the foundations of your work and the vision for the community that you have created among your people. And Father, as we open this, we ask that you would, you would open our hearts, that you would help us to see and, cap- and catch a vision for, for what your church is. Um, that you would help us to, to see ways that we fall into error, um, that you would help us to be able to join you in your work, and that we might um, reflect the, the level of passion that we see in front of us today. And so we pray that this time would be, that you would use this time within us to move by your spirit. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, church, we are in a series in Galatians. We're jumping back in this Sunday into this series, looking at the book of Galatians through the fall. Um, as we look at the book of Galatians, it's the 500th anniversary this fall of, in October of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And so we're doing so kind of with an eye toward the original context in Galatia and an eye toward 500 years ago um, as the Protestant Reformation began, but then also looking at how this text continues to speak to us today. And so today we, we come to, we're in Galatians chapter 2, and we see a, an argument here that is, it's like an apostolic throwdown between Paul and Peter that happened in the early church, and an explosive argument that was public, and it is something that is fascinating for us, but also something that's difficult to wrestle through, the kind of thing that it would be, it, it's, it's not hard to imagine similar things happening now. Um, we live in a world that is broken and divided. We live in a city that is divided. We live in a nation that is divided. And it seems like the closest thing we get to unity in our world, in our nation, in our city, is when tragedy strikes. This is what happens when somebody has lit charcoal, I think, and it's like wafting in through the windows and completely distracted by it um, because it makes me want to eat. Um, (laughs) Do you guys smell that? Um, that's going to be great for like if this is the sermon recording we go with that somebody will be listening on podcast and be like he got completely derailed three minutes into the sermon um, that's fantastic so um, <laughs> alright now that it's acknowledged if you smell burning fuel that's what we can be in unity together um, so I think really though the closest we get to unity culturally is when, when tragedy strikes and so we see this like in Houston right now that a hurricane hits and you see people from all kinds of different backgrounds coming together to help people, and, and, and it's beautiful to watch, but, and, and, or it'll happen after an attack or after a clear human rights violation, and I think that culturally we are really good at being heroes in the moment and knowing how to respond to a crisis and being compassionate and concerned and vocal and but the ongoing, long-term, plotting commitment 
to unity and to healing and to compassion and to care are things that we don't really do well. Social media just exacerbates that because everybody's expected to speak up for everything all the time. Um, but we need to be better at the plotting daily unseen commitments it takes to build real unity and to bring real healing. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us hope because the gospel frees us to a new humanity and a new community, a new family, and it's delicate and it's fragile to maintain it. And that's what's so shocking when we come to a text like we do today in Galatians chapter 2. Um, but this is an essential passage for us. And Martin Luther, the reformer, said that the entirety of the gospel can be found in this text alone, in this chapter. That if we were to lose everything else but had this chapter, we could still see what, it, what the gospel is in its fullness. And so, today, the big idea for this text is, is really a question, is what does it look like for the gospel to live loudly within us? What does it look like as individuals and as a church? So this is what we have. I'm going to read Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21, but we're just going to zero in on verses 11 to 14 this morning. Next week, we will cover verses 15 to 21, but the whole context is important for what we see. This is what we see. is um, the Apostle Paul writing, and he says, when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, we, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live um, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So church, a little bit of context here and why this confrontation came out. Paul comes on hot, doesn't he? Oh. <laughs> the glory of the Lord is descending <laughs> behind me on the platform right now. It felt like such a good idea to have the windows open instead of the air conditioner this morning. <clears throat> so I really was smelling charcoal. All right. Um, we're going to try to get things back on the rails. So here we go. <laughs> Paul comes on hot in this text. 
I mean, look at how this text starts. If, when Cephas or Peter came to Antioch, so this is, these are pillars in the early church. We just read in the beginning part of chapter 2, if you go back and read the first half of this chapter, we read about Paul and Barnabas and Titus going to Jerusalem. And as they went to Jerusalem, they did so because Paul wanted to lay out the gospel that he was proclaiming and make sure that there was unity between them. And they came to unity. They agreed with each other, and they extended fellowship to each other, and they even agreed, you know what, Peter, you're especially gifted to go to the Jewish people and stay in Jerusalem. Go and be the apostle to the Jewish people. And Paul, you are particularly gifted to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. So go and do that ministry, and it seems warm and friendly and good, and there's unity. And then we read in the next verse, but when Peter came up to Antioch, where Paul was centered, that he opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Like this isn't, Paul doesn't like trifle with words here. He doesn't say because I was offended by something he did. He doesn't say that I opposed him because it was a matter of preference that we needed to talk through. He said he confronted him immediately and publicly because he was standing in a place of condemnation out of step with, we read later, out of alignment with the truth of the gospel that they had agreed on. Why was it that he stood condemned? Well, Peter stood condemned for his hypocrisy, for leading others astray. Now, there's a connection here with what happens in the book of Acts, as we read, that in, in the storyline and timeline of Acts, and I really believe that this event happens in Acts chapter 11. So there's some interaction back and forth. And then in Acts 15, there ends up being a, what is called the Jerusalem Council, where the elders and the apostles came together to make official decisions, a ruling. It was really the first church council that ever happened. And I believe that Acts 15 was a result of this confrontation. And so it followed this. That, that, that many, but many people have observed rightly, a lot of commentators said rightly, that, that truly this confrontation that we read about in Galatians 2, which was otherwise lost, that, that wasn't recorded in the book of Acts for us, that this confrontation was actually more important than Acts 15 in the council. Because if Peter and Paul would have broken with each other in the midst of this, the council never would have happened. And it was those men who came together in unity and with one voice together in the early church. But it took this confrontation first. This passage that we're in, again, is the core of the book. It's the core of the gospel. And this section in Galatians 2 that we read through verse 21 sets up everything that follows through the rest of the book of Galatians. See, what Paul is saying through the rest of Galatians, what we see throughout the New Testament, is that the church is God's work in establishing a new community, a new humanity. Even Peter got this. Peter says in his, in his first letter, in the second chapter of it, he says to the Christians he's writing to, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, the, the church, what Christ accomplished, is, there is an individual aspect to our salvation, our justification, that we read about here in Galatians 2. But the implications of that extend, as this is language that was applied to the Israelites in Exodus 19, when God was making a covenant with them, and Peter extends that now, saying this is what the church is. It's a new humanity. It's a new community. And the barriers that divide us are torn down in what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And so it, there are core issues that Paul was fighting for here that helps us to know what it takes to see the gospel shape 
God's community here. At Redemption Hill, we talk about that, that we're a church that exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, gospel-shaped community, and gospel-driven mission in our city. What we see in Galatians 2 helps us to see what it takes to shape a gospel culture. So that second aspect, that we come together weekly with gospel-centered worship, gathering as God's people to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he has done, but then also that we are shaped into a community. And so there's three aspects here, um, and and we're going to take the ABCs of a gospel-shaped culture this morning. It's actually going to be A, B, and C in the three points. Um, I'm feeling a little like Southern Baptist today, so, um, and so we're going to roll with that. So the first one, um, shaping a gospel culture means that all are welcome and needed. That all are welcome and needed. The church is a family built on forgiveness and love, united by Christ. This is what we see earlier in chapter 2, that they came together in unity, and Paul makes a big deal out of it, that as they went down to Jerusalem, he brought Titus with him, and Titus was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. As they said, they brought in a man who was outside of the Jewish community, who was outside of the practices of the Jewish law, and Paul's contention, the reason he brought him with him to Jerusalem, was to be able to say that those aspects of the law had been fulfilled ultimately in Christ and were not required any longer for salvation. So he brings Titus almost as a test case to see that that would happen. And what happens is that they end up coming to unity together. Peter and Paul, James and John were involved in the discussion that they came to unity. Titus was welcome into the church family in all of his Greekness. He didn't need to become like a Jew and and follow Jewish law and Jewish customs in order to be a part of this new covenant community. And instead, Christ alone is the one who shapes our forgiveness, our justification, the one who shapes the community of the church. So all people are welcome and needed in this body. But it's built on forgiveness and love. It has to be. This gets tested among us, mostly relationally, but there was an event that happened a couple years ago that was one of the most amazing expressions of the beauty of the forgiveness and love that the gospel frees us toward that I've ever seen. On June 17th, 2015, Dylan Roof walked into a Wednesday Bible study at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston. And that Wednesday evening, he opened fire and he ended up killing nine people, injuring more at a Bible study. Historic African-American church that had existed for a couple of hundred years. And he walked in, welcomed into their midst, and pulled out a gun. On Friday, the 19th of June, just two days later, he faced the, victim, the family members of the victims in court. And what followed was amazing, incredible. I've, again, I've never seen anything like it. Um, Felicia Sanders stood up and her voice was trembling and, and she said to him, to this gunman, this white supremacist that had killed people in her church, she said, we welcomed you Wednesday night in our Bible study with, with welcome arms. Tawanza Sanders was my son, but Tawanza Sanders was my hero. Tawanza was my hero. May God have mercy on you. Nadine Collier, the daughter of a of 70-year-old Ethel Lance who had been killed, stood up and faced her mother's murderer, and she said, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. 
Um, the sister of DePayne, Middleton doctor, said, stood up and said, I, I acknowledge that I'm very angry. But one thing that DePayne always enjoined in our family is she, she taught me that we are the family that love built. We have no room for hating, so we have to forgive. And I pray that God have mercy on your soul. How were they able to forgive that way 48 hours later? See, our, our world teaches and values ourselves above everything else. Everything in our lives it ultimately comes down to a self-assertion. It's about my rights and my values and my opportunities and my voice and my identity and my advancement and, and what I think. And, and, and in that system, if we buy into that, that self-focus, there will be no room for this kind of forgiveness and no room for actual reconciliation, no room for real love. So why were they able to forgive? One pastor said that it's because they were part of a formative counterculture where people heard every week about a man who died for his enemies. This is what God's people are. This is, his, this is the church. This is what Christ has shaped and founded and called his people to be when it comes to suffering and forgiveness. You see, there's a reality that, that I know that I, as a white pastor, have a lot to learn from historic black churches and from Christians across the globe that have understood and encountered suffering, that have understood and encountered being marginalized culturally, and still because they're part of a counterculture where they hear every week about a man who died for his enemies are able to be a community of love and forgiveness and hope. Now listen, the devil doesn't want us to have this message today and is clearly trying to find every distraction possible. <laughs> it makes me want to lean in harder. We don't have anything quite like this in Redemption Hill currently. We don't have stark divisions where people are being barred from fellowship and from salvation, like what happened between Peter and Paul. We don't have people being killed for the, because of their skin color, but still we can and do marginalize people. And Paul here confronted Peter because he was marginalizing the Gentiles. We have to confront when we see that happening because our shared identity in Christ is primary and it has to be, the church has to be, a, a deliberate, intentional counterculture. Paul builds toward this through the rest of Galatians so that in chapter 3 we see him go on to say, to talk about that all those who are in faith in Christ are blessed along with Abraham, a man of faith, that, that if we're in Christ, we are Abraham's offspring and heirs of the promise. And I think that if you grew up in church, we read that and we go, well, yeah, that's beautiful and good. And, and I don't know, like Alyssa grew up children, singing children's songs. I wasn't in children's ministry as a kid, but like she has songs that she could sing. And I'm sure right now I could stand up and sing about Father Abraham having many sons and have all the motions with it. Um, and, and so we, we've, you can embrace that and go, yeah, I'm an heir of Abraham's promise, but you need to understand how countercultural and strange this would have been for the Apostle Paul to write to a bunch of Roman citizens that their heritage was now transferred to a Jewish patriarch that had lived thousands of years prior. That was not a great benefit at the time. And, and, and still, this is what, the beauty of what he's holding up is that the promises of God to Abraham, that through him, all of the families, all of the nations, all of the peoples of the world would be blessed, came to its fruition in Christ. 
And what happened in these new communities is Paul says, because of that, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Those walls are torn down because we are one in Christ. That we're brought together through him so that natural enemies become siblings with God as our father. Then this is the beauty of the vision of the new church community that was cast. But you need to understand that the reason this comes up in almost every New Testament letter is because it was actually happening in New Testament churches and people were freaking out about it. They didn't know how to handle it. That's why we read in almost every letter Paul writes, hey, you're all united in Christ. We see it in Colossians chapter 3. He says, barbarian and Scythian, slave or free. Same similar statement saying, no, everybody's come together. It is Christ in whom we find our ultimate identity. And so they had to fight for this in the early church the same way we have to fight for this in our churches now. And Paul worked this out personally. I think it's helpful for us to see 1 Corinthians 9, that the apostle, he's talking about his own posture. And what we see in him is something that, that we are called toward if you're a follower of Jesus. He said this, he said, though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, although not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings. See, remember, no one was more zealously Jewish than Paul. You can read about that in Galatians 1, earlier in the same letter, when he says, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But something happened through Christ. And one commentator said here, Peter and Paul don't cease to be Jews. I mean, he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So he is like finding common ground with Peter here saying, hey, Peter, I know this is who we are. But the normative claim of the Jewish way of life has been subordinated to the higher, and in this case, case clashing demand that their lives be oriented to the good news. I want you to hear that again. They don't cease to be Jewish. But the normative claim of the Jewish way of life has been subordinated to the higher, and in this case, clashing demand that their lives be oriented to the good news. How is it that Paul, as a Jewish man who nobody was more zealous than him for Jewish way of life, came to a point where he says in 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jews I become as a Jew. He has a different ultimate identity. It hasn't gotten rid of his distinctiveness and background and story, but it's been subordinated to it. I want to be careful here. Please don't hear this as as a whitewashing, that that there needs to be a sameness of us. I think it's the opposite of that. That's why Titus is, he makes a big, Paul makes a big deal like, hey, Titus wasn't even forced to be circumcised. He was embraced in all, everything that he is. He wasn't made to be like a Jewish person in order to come into the community. And besides, nothing could be more boring than a completely monochrome church. But unity in Christ is profound and it's biblical and it's essential. It only, it only matters that you, when unity brings together natural enemies, again, who have a primary identity in Christ, and that frees us to live in forgiveness and love and compassion. So this is the opportunity for the church to bring people together in ways that none of us can do on our own. 
We have to be in it together, and we have to, and every one of you is needed for the work, especially those of you that don't look like me. We need, as one, as one per, as Andy Crouch, he has a book on culture making, talking about what is it that we do to create culture. He said, we need robust communities of fearless friends. And it's such communities, not just their famous representatives, that can actually transform culture. Communities are the way God intervenes to offer within every culture a different and better horizon. To be a Christian is to stake our lives on the belief that the only cultural, the only cultural goods that ultimately matter are the ones that love creates. So church, we need to hear this today. If you are in a position of power or a position of majority, we need to be able to be postured to listen and to learn and to love in humility, seeking out people that aren't like us. If you're in a position of weakness or minority, we need your voice. We need you to help us. We need you to, you need your presence and to lead us toward what it looks like to love and to forgive, especially when some of us are dumb. So what happened here with Peter? How did we get to this point? I mean, remember Peter's story. Peter's story, uh, he was the, the, the rock on whom Jesus was going to build his church. And in Acts chapter 10, we read about Peter going to Cornelius' house. And Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and he's invited in for a meal. And Peter's like, nope, I'm not going to do it. Because Jewish people would not eat with Gentile people. They couldn't be sure if the food was going to be kosher. They couldn't be sure if they, were gonna be, if, they, if they would be made ceremonially unclean and unable to go to the temple and to actually practice in the sacrificial system. Like, it was a big deal to share table fellowship, and Peter goes to Cornelius' house, but God had prepped him for Cornelius' visit because he came to Peter in a vision, in a dream, and there was a sheet that was let down, and animals, all the animals of the earth, and, and God's voice to Peter saying, take and eat, and Peter said, no way to God, no, I'm not going to eat what you've called unclean. So it took three tries before God finally got through Peter's thick skull to say, Peter, take and eat it. And because of that, all of Christians for the rest of, of the church, church's history have been able to eat bacon. Hallelujah. <laughs> to the glory of God and the joy of all people. But something happened. Peter went in and spent time with Cornelius and stepped out of his comfort zone and watched as the Spirit of God descended on that house. And he came back, and in Acts chapter 11, we read about the reception of Peter when he comes back to the Jewish Christian community, and, some, and, he, was, and, and he said he comes back to them, and the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God, and so Peter went back to Jerusalem, and you know what happened? The circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. The response to Peter's cross-cultural move was criticism from the circumcision party. How dare you go and eat with those Gentiles? So Peter laid out what had happened and laid out his case in the story in Acts chapter 11. And by the end of it, the church glorified God, saying to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance to life. And so what happened here? Like Peter had stood and fought for this. He had stood and fought for the ability to go to Cornelius' house. He had stood, he had gone and done this and, and had, had eaten and had shared table fellowship with non-Jewish people. That's why, why, why when Paul calls him out, he says, hey, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force them to live like Jews? He's saying, Peter, what are you doing? 
Why the hypocrisy? Why has this slipped in? Because what was happening was that when Peter showed up in Antioch, it was a big moment. The rock on whom Christ would build his church, the apostle in Jerusalem, the guy that everyone looked to, and there had been division and clash, and people were pitting Paul against Peter, and Peter shows up and only reinforces a stereotype that the Gentiles need to become more Jewish. That's why Paul exploded. So what, was, what got to him? Well, what got to him is clear in the text. It was fear. He was afraid. It says when, when they came, that there were some men from James, so there were some messengers from James in Jerusalem, and they heard that Peter was eating with Gentiles, and, and when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing who? The circumcision party. The same guys from Acts 11. They wouldn't let up. They were, still, they were still causing problems. And that leads to the second aspect of shaping a gospel culture. The first is that all are welcome and needed. The second is boldness in the place of fear. Now, there's a lot of debate about who this circumcision party are. The most consistent use in the New Testament, we did a bunch of studies on this as a staff team this week, and the most consistent use we see in the New Testament is that the circumcision party were likely Jewish people, Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who were persecuting, going after the new Christian group. Because it was unsure what was going to happen, much like the Reformation, where you read the Protestant reformers, and you read Luther, and read Calvin, and there wasn't a desire from Luther to break from the church. He wasn't trying to start a new denomination. He was trying to point out things and have a theological debate within the Roman Catholic Church to say, hey, we need to reform some of the things we're doing because we're out of step with Scripture. And so similarly, the the early Christians were saying, you guys, Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for. He's the one who was promised. He's the one that all of our scriptures point to. This is the movement of God and the reshaping of God's people that we've learned about and waited for from Jeremiah and from Isaiah. And so they were saying they saw themselves very much as Jewish. And so you had a similar situation, though, where these Jewish leaders were saying, no way, you are not with us. You're eating with Gentiles. This was the Apostle Paul before he came to Christ. Was he was somebody that was attacking and imprisoning Christians. That he, was, he, over, he presided over the stoning and killing of the first Christian martyr. And so I think the circumcision party, the, most, the clearest thing, because I think sometimes here it's possible, and the argument can be made, that the circumcision group is a group of early Christians who were really zealous to continue the things of the law, and that Peter got intimidated by their political pull inside the church. That argument's made, but I, I have a hard time believing it with Peter. I mean, the guy can be dense sometimes, but he's never without boldness and passion. And he'd already fought for this issue. But think about this. If Peter got up to Antioch, and then he had messengers sent from James, that the circumcision party was putting extra pressure on the church, and he's saying, you're causing suffering and greater persecution at home because of your actions in Antioch. Can you imagine Peter's pastoral heartbreak and his fear for what's happening back home? And so here, it was that fear that drove him. I mean, to be told that your actions are causing others to suffer and be burdened with that responsibility, whether you want it or not. But Paul didn't act out of fear here. He acted in boldness. See, what Paul did was he leveraged his position and his privilege, and he didn't stay silent. He was willing to say, hey, When it comes to the law, I was more zealous than anybody. I understand it better than anybody. Peter was a fisherman. Paul's like, I was a Pharisee. 
I, I know the ins and outs. I know how this circumcision party, he probably knew the guys that were continuing to persecute Christians because he was one of them in his past. He doesn't stay silent. He speaks up. And one author I just read recently said that to flinch, to turn away, to ignore is only an option for the privileged. And Paul doesn't do it. He could have just turned a blind eye and said, whatever, Peter, he's up here from Jerusalem. When he leaves, we'll just pick up the mess. But he doesn't. He confronts. And this is important for us. We need to see that it takes boldness in the place of fear to actually see the gospel shape a community. Because if we turn a blind eye toward marginalization within a community, that stuff will fester and bring division ultimately. Andy Crouch wrote a book about, about um, shaping culture. I just quoted from it. It's called Culture Making. And in that, he has an entire chapter on postures versus gestures. He says, every one of us lives with a certain posture in our lives. And that posture comes out practically in the things that we do. And so we see this practically, right? Like, like when you're around um, an athlete, there's a certain way that somebody carries themselves and walks and moves that you can tell that somebody's an athletic person. Even as kids, like we, I coached Little League for my son's team and yesterday was our first game and we had a kid who couldn't make it to practice because he had whatever that awful stomach virus is that circulated through some of your houses. And so Saturday he shows up and you could tell from the moment the kid stepped on the field, like, ah, he's a player. There are other kids that step on the field and you're like, oh no, it's not safe for you to be here. <laughs> And so we can see that in a posture because there's, there's, there's a posture that somebody has toward athleticism, but then there's gestures that it shows up practically in their lives. It shows up in other ways. You can tell when, when somebody is, has played a lot of video games because their thumbs are always twitching and they have like a hunched shoulders. You can tell that with those of us that sit at desks for a job because the same thing happens. You can tell when somebody, um, all kinds of things practically and physically with us, but that shows up in other ways in our lives too. And so it's this give and take where our posture can shape our gestures, but also then the gestures that we do long term end up shaping our posture. All this to say, there are things that we do that we don't even realize that are, sh- that are shaped by the posture that we have. If you're in Christ, the postures that we have had in our lives previously are, are undone as he works within us to move to forgiveness and love. Because he shows us. Because he forgave us and he loves us. And that needs to start showing up in our gestures toward each other, in our practical lives. And we need to live practicing so that it changes our posture. It's a constant fight, but, but, but fear and a drivenness by fear will never accomplish anything good for us. And so, for us, the church needs to be postured, not reactively responding to outside pressure like Peter here, who is, who is reacting and his posture of fear is driving him toward, toward, toward responding to that pressure and, and living in hypocrisy, but instead, like Paul, boldness will help us proactively advance the kingdom of God in unity. But our gestures are going to take rewiring, too. We need to learn to not react defensively toward each other and to to be willing to believe the best in each other. That's what love is in 1 Corinthians 13. And we need to be willing to approach one another in vulnerability, knowing that we're going to get hurt. Because that's what Christ did. And so if you're in a position of privilege, steward it, leverage it. Every one of us has an opportunity here, though. Paul, as a Jew, could confront Peter in a unique way about Jewish issues in ways that Titus couldn't. Titus needed Paul to fight on his behalf. And every one of us has a voice somewhere, every one of us, a powerful voice into people's lives around us. Leverage it with boldness. This is what Paul said to young Timothy, a pastor that he was mentoring. He said to him, um, 
God gave us not a spirit, of, a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so listen, on this, let's, let's commit as a body to lean in together toward each other in love. And one thing on this, we get tempted, I think, right now to believe that the most important and effective thing we can do is broad in public. I think that's what's, what people push, like this idea that, that when something happens, when anything happens, we need to speak immediately and quickly and publicly and on social media, and that's how we make a stand. Speaking on social media rarely is actually a stand. Most of our social media streams are, have been refined down to an echo chamber of people who think like us, because otherwise we unfollow them. Because we don't want that mess getting into our lives, or if you don't, do it. <laughs> so that you don't spend your life angry. And I see this all the time, and there's pressure put on me where every single week, there's somebody that's tweeting, if your pastor isn't preaching about X this Sunday, you need to find a different church. My gosh. There was one recently when there was the procedural vote on whether to consider a repeal of health care in the Senate, and it was a procedural vote on whether to have a conversation and move toward an actual vote, and somebody tweeted, if your pastor isn't preaching on the needs of health care in this procedural vote this Sunday, I was like, a procedural vote? Like, this, we've got, we have reached a level of absurdity here. There is a reality that if, if we're in Christ, our hope is in one gospel, and that will have implications that are far-reaching, but the power of that is going to be worked out locally first. People that we actually know and see and, and love, and, and to be able to go and grab somebody on a Sunday and give them a big hug and, and, and embrace and, and talk and sit over a meal together in each other's homes and share time together, that's where actual transformation happens. That's where actual, actual impact happens. That's where a different culture is built. And actually, the things that we do that are broad and public will do more to get in the way of the, of the work that we have in front of us locally than it will to help it. Peter, Paul didn't say here, you know what? We're having a council because this issue just blew up. No, it was, it was enough of a divide that was going to destroy and divide the church in Antioch that Peter stood up in the moment to, and Paul stood up in the moment to Peter and said, said, you are out of step with the gospel. We need to talk about this right now because I know what's happening. I'm a Jewish person too. We're both Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, but we know the justification didn't come by the law. It only came in Christ. He's saying we need to talk together and recalibrate because we've, you've gotten out of step here. But Paul doesn't decide, you know what we need to do is pull everybody else into this discussion first. He goes to his brother and says, hey, we were in unity. What happened? Church, we live in community with each other, and God has put us into a community with each other so that we can help each other, but it takes boldness, not fear. So let's start locally. It is easy to deconstruct what is bad and wrong. Globally, if you want to look at our culture and talk about what's wrong and where the divisions lie, we could go on for weeks and weeks and weeks and have an issue Sunday, 52 Sundays a year. It's easy to deconstruct what's wrong in our church. There are things I would love to see. Areas of growth that we need to lean into and that I desperately long to see us grow in. But let's not respond out of fear and only deconstruct. Let's be bold enough to try to build something together and actually strive toward unity. All right, the third, A, B, and C. A, all are welcome. B, 
boldness in the place of fear. And the third aspect of shaping a gospel culture is Christ alone is our hope. The conduct of the Jewish believers here, Barnabas even got sucked into it. Others got sucked into what Peter was doing. It was out of step with the gospel. There was, there's a road, a narrow pathway that Jesus describes that it is to follow him, and Peter had stepped off of it. Barnabas and Peter had swerved. They had, they had hit an exit lane. They were headed off track. And what is the truth of the gospel? We see it in what follows. That's why we read the whole section together, because the original, you know, the original letter that Paul wrote, didn't, the Greek language didn't use quotation marks, and, and so it's, we don't even know where the conversation stops here, but I believe 15 and following is still their conversation. That as, as Paul confronted Peter and says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And he went on talking to Peter saying, saying, we ourselves are Jews by birth. I know that. And we're not Gentile sinners yet. We know that a person is not justified, not made righteous by works of the law. See, this is what the gospel is, that, that there is nothing that any of us can do to earn our way into holiness and righteousness. And that the things that we do to try to earn our way into our own self-justification will only further keep us from actual righteousness, which is only available in Christ. And this is what Paul is saying to Peter. He says, listen, it is, a person is not justified by works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. And so as the reformers would say, it's by faith alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone that we are saved. This is our only hope, that we've believed in Christ, so that we're justified, declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. That that the law only shows us where we fall short and it shows us our death, but, but in Christ we've been crucified with him, our flesh has been killed. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives within us, so that we live by his righteousness in his standing. This is our only hope. It's the only thing that we can cling to. And if we start adding in other aspects of law and holding up preferences that we have as if they are law and, and, and as if they are the way to righteousness, to true righteousness, then we've given up the gospel itself. So how is it that we, that we see the gospel take hold and cling to Christ alone? Well, this is, again, what we saw in the beauty of the response of the, of the saints in Mother Emanuel Church. Because of the formative counterculture that had been established where people heard each week about a man who died for his enemies. Let's not elevate our preferences too highly. And yeah, we've been given freedom in Christ but that freedom is given for us to lay down for each other. Believing that, we're building something bigger together. Our hope isn't in methods or styles or programs or approach. Our hope is only in Christ. This is true of every relationship that we have. Every friendship requires us to lay something down. This is true, like you think about a marriage. You have to lay things down. You have to live self-sacrificially for a marriage to work. I do not always get my way in my marriage. That might be surprising to you. I'm confident that Alyssa doesn't always have things go the way that she wants either. You get past the first month of being married where everything's just exciting and you don't realize that you're stepping on each other yet and you realize, oh, the closer you get, the more friction there can be. That's true in relationships. That's true in the church. Some of you have made conscious sacrifices to be a part of Redemption Hill. 
and I'm so grateful. Others of you will have to at some point, because we as a church believe that there's greater beauty and a greater diversity of God's people, and that the greater diversity of God's people will lead to a deeper and more powerful unity. And so our hope is in our Savior alone, who sacrificed himself to bring outsiders in. So listen, church, my hope today is that you will leave with hope in Christ. It is really hard right now to look around at our city and see how divided our city is, to see our nation and the divides that, have, that just seem to get deeper and deeper, and to look even more broadly at our world. It's hard not to get discouraged and wonder what could we possibly do that can bring any hope and change to this place. But listen, I believe with everything in me that we are uniquely postured as God's people to see transformation happen and to see these, this division addressed. We really believe that, that worship centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ is what will bring us hope as we consistently, regularly are reminded of God's love for us in him. That that gospel can shape a community where we're reminded weekly that a man died for his enemies and was raised from death to life and that he is the one that gives us hope that there can be love and forgiveness in a community. And that drives us then to engage differently with the people around us as we can be a unifying force even in our city. It's simple, it's ABCs. That all people are welcome and needed, that boldness needs to exist in the place of fear, that Christ alone is our hope. So church, let's have the gospel live loudly within us. Let's have the gospel live loudly in our lives and in our church and see God do a work in creating a culture that reflects the beauty of Christ. Next week, we're gonna continue to plumb the depths of that word and that gospel as we continue to look at this same passage but with the next set of verses, verses 15 to 21, to understand more more deeply what justification is and, and how that shapes us. Um, So let's continue on together. Don't lose heart. Live with boldness. Let's build something together. Father, would you help us? We need you. Would you show us the areas where we are blind, where we have missed it? Would you help us to see the love that you have for us? Would you help us to extend that love and grace and forgiveness to each other? You've given us great hope in Christ. Would you help us to cling to that alone? And Father, would you forgive us? As you open our eyes to the ways that we're prone to marginalize people, to the areas where we are prone to elevate preferences to the, to the level of, uh, that they divide unnecessarily, would you, would, you, would you move in us that we would see those things and be humble enough to turn to you and to others to plead for forgiveness and repentance? Father, I believe that you're doing a great work among your people. I believe you're doing a great work in this church. We want to be a part of this countercultural community that's able to show what the beauty of Christ looks like and reflect your glory. So would you do that work in us? It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen.